Welcome to the Adoptee Diaries, the podcast where we dive into the untold stories of adoptees and navigate the complex landscape of adoption. I am your host, Bethany Fraser, and today we have a very special episode in store for you. I can't believe fall is around the corner, which means summer, sadly, is almost over. The kids are back in school, and it's back to the business of our regular routines. September is always a busy month in our house. Besides summer's last hurrah Labor Day weekend, as a former flight attendant, I honor September 11th. I acknowledge Grandparents' Day, and given my Jewish roots, this Christian observes Rosh Hashanah, and also two very special birthdays. My youngest turns 16 this month, and my big boy hits the big 2-1. These boys are the driving force behind my commitment to personal growth and positive change. They are my why. I was determined to become a better mom, which meant actively becoming a better person. It wasn't only for their sake, but for mine. This decision involved taking steps to heal myself, even though I didn't quite recognize it as healing at that time. I needed to reshape my thinking, which in turn had me rethinking my literal actions, meaning what was I physically doing for business and pleasure and who was I doing it with? Ultimately, this transformation required I start to look at who I was being. What was my identity? It's a loaded question for anyone, especially an adoptee. For decades, I did not know my biology. I didn't understand my psychology or even have a clue of my culture, my family history, my ancestry, and so on. I've wanted to start a podcast for quite some time. Specifically, I wanted to start this podcast for over a year now. What always stopped me was the fear of showing up short of expectations, the nerves that I wasn't good enough, and the comparison to the amazing and brave voices that already exist in this space long before I came. It was when one friend of mine reminded me that every story is unique and someone will heal from hearing mine. I took the plunge. I shifted my thinking. I don't need to be perfect. I just need to show up. When I started the pod, I imagined that I'd interview people I met on my journey of self-discovery and introduce them to whoever was listening. Bring on those who validated the importance of my story and encouraged me to share. I wanted it to be a vehicle to share my personal experience as an adoptee and my individual search for identity and belonging. I envisioned reaching out to other adoptees who also wanted to share their unique journeys so that whoever needed to hear their feelings and experiences could. And in turn, anybody listening could also have hope and experience what it feels like to heal from isolation, confusion, searching, and find belonging in this community along with a sense of identity and receive some support. Over the past year, I've had the privilege of meeting other adoptees in person and virtually, as well as connecting with various members of the broader adoption community, just to try to understand the process, uh, the transaction a little bit better. As I continue to make sense of and understand how my own adoption story has shaped who I am and how I present myself to the world, my hope is to inspire others to consider how their life experiences have influenced them and their personal journeys. I have become part of this remarkable community of adoptees who courageously share their lived experiences, and together we create a space where we can explore one another's stories, connect deeply, and ensure that nobody feels alone in their journey. Ultimately, they feel validated. 
13 years ago, I experienced one of those life-altering oh shit moments that served as a wake-up call from the universe. It was my God's way of telling me that I hadn't been paying attention to the signs and nudges along the way to course correct. That moment marked a significant fork in my life's path, causing a complete upheaval of everything I had known and believed. I underwent an implosion in my life that left me feeling lost and unsure of what to do next. Thankfully, with the support of dear friends, I was introduced to a therapist and began the intentional process of unraveling the layers of how I arrived at that point in my life. All of this is to say that I've been on a deeply personal journey of self-discovery for nearly 13 years now. Along the way, I've had the privilege of connecting with incredible individuals who have all played a pivotal role in guiding me through this transformative journey. They've provided me with invaluable resources, tools, and perspectives that have steered my path in ways I could never have imagined. They help me reconsider how I perceive myself, what I'm capable of, and build my future. And now, while I very much so remain on a daily endeavor and a continuous process of healing, I'm on a mission to pay it forward. Through this podcast, I aspire to create a supportive community where we can openly discuss those tools, strategies, and insights that were instrumental in my own growth. And my hope is that by sharing my discoveries and introducing you to the actual people that have helped me, I can provide new perspectives on the healing journey for you to consider. So whether you're an adoptee, a friend, a family member, uh, a counselor, an educator, Anybody simply seeking a deeper understanding of life's experiences, and if you have that internal nudge that things could be better or you could experience life with more ease, please know that you're not alone on that journey. And this is your uh, reminder to pay attention to those nudges and those voices inside. So before I introduce you to this month's guest, I want to acknowledge that September is also National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. This Awareness Month prompted me to look into the issues of suicide within the adoptee community. And sadly, the data reveals that the odds of reported suicide attempts are elevated in individuals who are adopted compared to those who are not. I will say it again. The data shows that the odds of reported suicide attempts are elevated in individuals who are adopted compared to those who are not. It's a sobering statistic. It underscores the importance of raising awareness and providing resources to this community. I want to give special credit to childhood trauma consultant Beth Tyson for introducing me to the concept of trauma and its potential impact on my life experiences. Understanding Beth's work led me to explore what childhood trauma truly looks like. For me, going back, what I discovered was that in my young adult and adult life primarily, When life started lifing, much of the loss that I experienced may have been triggering something deep inside me, something I wasn't even consciously aware of. Beth's research had such a profound impact on me that I had to confront the possibility that I had been experiencing life from a place of fear and anxiety rather than from a place of peace, confidence, and ease. Listen, I got the memo a long time ago that life was not going to be a cakewalk. I've always considered myself a resilient, positive, optimistic person. I've said my prayers. I've read self-help books. I've invested in therapy and even embraced professional and personal coaching. If I were to recount my life story, I'd tell you I had it all figured out. 
One thing that I'll never forget is when a friend of mine asked me if brown was my favorite color because life kept handing me poo-poo on a platter. Took me a minute to understand what she meant, but bottom line is life wasn't perfect and my recount was not accurate. That conversation was a really long time ago and a lot has happened in my life since, but that conversation and that concept of me going backwards and understanding what had happened then and how it ties into now was really important. And it's also a segue to today's guest. So to understand the concept of intergenerational trauma, which is a unique type of trauma passed down through our family lines, our biology, and our very genetic ties, there's a role that our nervous system also plays in shaping our responses to the world around us. And there's also the psychology of it all, how we connect with others, our emotional care during childhood, and our upbringing in general. Beth Tyson opened up a world of understanding for me. She also introduced me to the work of Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Dr. Bouquet is not just a psychologist, but a beacon of wisdom and healing in the field of mental health. She started her journey at Columbia University, where she earned her doctorate in counseling psychology, and where she started to explore holistic mental health, further shaping her unique approach to healing. What truly sets her apart is her world-renowned expertise in intergenerational trauma, a concept, as I've mentioned, I recently became aware of, and now I'm starting to explore. Dr. Bouquet is the author of the groundbreaking book, Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. Her approach to therapy is as holistic as her background, infusing infusing ancient and indigenous healing practices into a modern comprehensive therapeutic framework. Taking holistic care to another level, she seamlessly integrates sound bath meditation and breath work into her therapy sessions and deepens the healing experience for her clients and her corporate partners. Her expertise and trauma approach have garnered her international attention with major major media outlets such as the Today Show, Good Morning America, and ABC News. In recognition of her exceptional contributions, she was also named one of the 100 Greatest People Doing Good by the School of Greatness in, in 2022 and was honored as an inaugural Very Well Mind 25 Mental Health Champion. One of my favorite quotes that Dr. Bouquet introduced me to is this. Every day you're presented with a new opportunity to break the cycle. All you have to do is take it. Some of her expert topics cover healing trauma, intergenerational trauma, forming healthy relationships, trauma-responsive classrooms, toxic relationship cycles, family dynamics, systemic trauma, collective trauma, and corporate wellness. She has free resources available on her website. So everything that we talk about today, please keep in mind that you can go to drmariellebouquet.com. That's D-R-M-A-R-I-E-L-B-U-Q-U-E.com for free available resources. And don't forget to pre-order her book out in January 2024, Break the Cycle. You are welcome. During my conversation with Dr. Bouquet, we discuss the intersection of psychology and biology. We explore how when life throws us a curveball, which she describes as an unexpected fracture or uprooting, it often aligns with our psychological setup, creating the perfect breeding ground, especially in adoptees for trauma. Okay, so that was a long intro, but if you've listened this far, here's the thing. A world of healing and recovery is available to you. 
And my prayer is if you've landed here and you are listening to this podcast today and you feel any of this conversation resonates with you, please, please know that you are not alone in what you are feeling. And, and here's the good stuff, recovery and healing is available. There are humans out here that are truly working to understand us and help us identify and move past the pain. So with that, I bring you the remarkable Dr. Marielle Bouquet. I am so excited that you're here today. I know you. I found your work by my um, friend and fellow trauma consultant, Beth Tyson, Mm -hmm. who really is the one that uncovered my, uncovered, I guess, the word trauma for me and explained to me what at 40, I'm almost 47. So I met her at Beth at 46 years old. She explained it to me. And then I started searching for people in the space and I found you. So I'm very thankful to meet you. I, I am so happy you're here. So, um, in the intro, I explained to everybody listening who you are and all your beautiful accomplishments. Um, how did you land on this work? I think we'll start at the beginning. Uh, yes, yes. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be here with you also, by the way, and grateful to Beth for connecting us. And um, to answer your question, my journey, my journey has taken a personal and professional um it kind of intersects at, at the intersection of both my own lived experience, my life, and that which I practice. And what I mean by that is that I actually didn't set out to be a psychologist when I was like a little girl. Uh, I, this is actually my second career. So I happened to work for five years in advertising. And I was actually volunteering while I was working because I felt not very fulfilled. I just felt like the work that I did had a very very profound capitalistic kind of nature, making big, big companies, big money (laughs) versus there being any kind of like soul connection to the work. And when I started, I understand that. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. So there was a lot of soul searching (laughs) that happens around that season of my life. And I happened to volunteer over at my hometown of North New Jersey and the volunteer work started looking more and more like mental health related volunteer work. And I started, you know, um, really getting acquainted with this version of how I could help my communities, the people that I care about. And so that was happening. But simultaneous to that, on a more personal end, I was actually about to undergo major surgery for the first time in my life in my early 20s. And I was petrified of the idea of what surgery actually means, like all the details of it, like you're so vulnerable, you get, you know, someone's um, you know, incising on your body and, and then you sign off these waivers that have all this lingo that's really scary. And so mm. I was very, very petrified. And I, a colleague of mine actually suggested that I attend therapy. And during my first session, the therapist actually said, I think you should be a therapist. And from then on, he actually coached me on how to get wow. back into grad school. And, and I felt like, you know, the professional, the whole like, you know, volunteering mixed with my own experiences of profound fear and finding my way into someone who can see my psychological mindedness in a way that I hadn't seen myself was, I think, really just divine. I think everything just aligned at the right time to get me to the right path. 
Oh, I love that. I actually, I feel like I know you because I follow you on Instagram and all those <laughs> wonderful places that you exist. And I did not know that. So I'm mm-hmm. thank you for obviously doing something uncomfortable and shifting because, you know, I, I said this to you uh, before, but I'll say it now since we're recording the work that you do and the content that you provide, I know for me personally has been like I did your sound meditation this morning, right? I know it's so beautiful. And I, first of all, I'm sipping all the Kool-Aid of everything that, that you talk about, which is healing and meditation and well, it's wellness in the bucket of wellness. And not everybody might believe in like a wellness, um, and healing. I, I think some people might look at even me cross-eyed if I'm like, oh, going to a sound bath or I'm doing this or I'm doing that. But I definitely encourage people to consider that because if anything, it brings your heart rate down. It stops the anxiety and thing. And and I'm just so thankful for all the things that you put out there. Um, you. So you are not just a psychologist. Um, you are, I feel like you're really leading the conversation right now in the mental health space. Um, it's my personal opinion because when I started my journey to healing some of my anxiety and trying to get rid of some of the fear that I could identify I possessed, I found you. And the the words that you were saying deeply resonated with me. Um, as I shared with you, as part of my starting this podcast really was to make sure that other people that I have been meeting that also experience fear and trauma and anxiety and just nervousness. I just feel like I was always blanketed in some sort of nervousness. Um, I, I don't know. I think that what you're, what you're talking about is important. Um, in terms of the podcast, specifically, my goal is to uh, connect you with different adoptees and the experiences that they're having. So in terms of that, can you explain, this is one thing that I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Intergenerational trauma, right? Is what? Mm-hmm. Just like on this at the at the surface, and then we can like dig into what it could mean to an adoptee. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's a great starting point for us. So, intergenerational trauma is the only type of trauma that's handed down the family line, and it happens at the crossroads of two um, modes of transmission. One, which is our biology, meaning that we have a number of things uh, that that contribute to this. Most notably. Uh, an, an element of our genetics that definitely ties into what gets translated forward emotionally to our children, our children's children. And so there's the genetic tie that's there. There's also within the context of our biology, the ways that our our nervous systems actually develop form, especially during critical points in our um, in our life, whether it's inside of the womb where the nervous system is kind of initially formulating itself and then as, as we're extracted from the mother's belly or from, from the parent's belly, then it's a transition over into the, the life that we live and how our nervous system then uh, interacts with our social environments. So that's more of the biology. Then we have the psychology of it all, which is more of the psychosocial elements of how we experience the world. That meaning how we connect to others, the level of attunement that caregivers give us, the level of um, uh, emotional care that we're offered throughout our childhood, and any within that, of course, any experiences that are also a part of our upbringing that uh, could create for us any kind of um, emotional challenge. So it's the when the psychology and the biology meet, that's when we can say, hey, we have 
what we're in essence calling intergenerational trauma. And the reason why is because a person can have a biological, genetic, and otherwise predisposition to stress and trauma. But that doesn't necessarily already translate into intergenerational trauma because they can have a home environment where the, found the foundation was set emotionally enough and people broke cycles enough so as to not have this child surface with any trauma symptoms. But if there was any fracturing of any sort, if something happens in the journey in a, in a person's childhood that could have offered enough of, um, of an emotional kind of uprooting, Mm -hmm. Then it made it so that we then indeed do have the setup, at least a psychological setup to match with the biology to, in essence, say, hey, intergenerational trauma is part of the picture here. Wow. Yeah. And I, I had never heard of it before. Um, something I, I had a situation back in 2010, which is the first time I then entered therapy because of the situation. Amazing therapist. Um, she did medicate me ultimately for general anxiety and some mild depression, and that was 2010. I am finally, officially, as of November, just this last year, 2022, off it. So I was on it for 10 years. And I think she's a fantastic therapist. She dealt with a situation that I went in there for, and then we broke so many things down in, in our lives. I mean, I love this woman. Mm -hmm. We never talked about these things. We never really talked about how or if adoption played into any of my anxiety, Um now, at that time, I didn't, I, that was before I did my DNA test. That was before I had reunion with my birth father. Mm -hmm. I have, um, I did have reunion with my birth mother. Um, so specifically, because I know those pieces now, I'm able to say, gosh, this is what my birth mother went through when she was pregnant, mm -hmm. um, dealing with a family that was very much so not in favor of her having a child. And she did have me, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Um so the stress, we don't talk about it that much. She's She doesn't talk about it that much. I give her grace and I, I really did interrogate her a lot because I wanted to know these answers. And um, so knowing what she went through when she was pregnant and then subsequently, more recently, reconnecting with my birth father and knowing what he comes from, having an opportunity to meet his family and then hear the stories of each of their experiences, both when they found out that there was going to be a little me and then also in their lives before, you know, even going back to ancestors, I shared with you, my mother's Jewish. They're definitely, um, they, they are Holocaust survivors in the family. Mm -hmm. And on my father's side, they descend from slaves. So when I think about, you know, my mind can kind of get, I, I, I go into this now that I know it. Um, so I don't know if it, if there's anything that you can say sort of to that because it feels like it could be real that I, the trauma and the anxiety that exists in my life, of course, because of the experiences of my lived, you know, life. But before that, if I'm not raised by them, is it possible that that can still impact me and my wiring and who I am, even if I was placed and raised in a loving home? Mm -hmm. Does that question make sense? I'm trying to make, Absolutely. I'm trying to sort of like bring it home and make it make sense. So anybody listening can, you know, understand how that can work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes absolute sense to me. And I would like to answer it um, by helping us understand that I think it's critical for us to go back into the model of biology and psychology, right? Because we're already talking about two distinct lines of families that already come with profound wounds, right? 
the initial studies on intergenerational trauma that came, uh, that were done for individuals who were human, right? Like outside of labs where we were in essence, like testing the epigenetic transmissions that happen more so in animals to then translate that over to humans, being ethical about it all. They were um, conducted with the uh, descendants of the uh, Holocaust. Well, actually children of descendants of the Holocaust. So we were able to actually identify that individuals who were born to Holocaust survivors, not the Holocaust survivors themselves, but the children born to them had this distinct marker within their bodies that was considered to be what we call like remarkable in science, which is that their cortisol levels were significantly lower than Jewish descendants who did not descend from individuals who survived the Holocaust. What that means is that at least what we know about the, these um, diminished cortisol levels is that they, are, they have a high correlation to post-traumatic stress disorder. And so there's already a very strong and profound genetic component that is already present. Typically, what we tend to see with and, and this is, of course, still in flux because we are, you know, trying to get a, a good grasp of how are babies internalizing all of this. But some babies are have been noted as being, you know, sometimes a little bit more challenging to console or colicky or like there's a number of different characteristics that happen at, at a very early age that already kind of like sets us up for understanding, okay, this baby has maybe like an emotional vulnerability that's there. And what we also know is that that transmission happens both on the um, maternal and paternal side. So at really kind of like while, while you're still developing, not in your mother's, but in your grandmother's womb, because you first develop as a tiny little precursor cell in both of your grandmother's wombs on your father's side and on your mother's side. Both of those small little microscopic cells are taking cues from their social environments and then creating some of what would wow. eventually be the emotional foundation. So it's a, it's a very like long line of deep genetic ties. So whenever someone is saying, well, you know, I came into a home where love was present, where the emotional foundation felt steady enough, then what we know is that there's at least one part of the intergenerational makeup that didn't necessarily surface. There's a lot that I have to say about this, so forgive me for the long-winded answer. No, here. I, it's so good. Thank you. It's yeah. so I'm I'm totally tracking. By the way, yeah. um, so thank you. <laughs> Keep going. It's great. So, one thing to understand, and and you know, also by listening to your story, I was also able to gather that there were, regardless of there being so much love, and I also I come from a very loving home. And yet sometimes there are things that we don't know could feel traumatizing inside of those very, very loving homes. Um, there are things that once we're adults, we're like, oh, wait, hmm, there's something about yeah. that that yep. doesn't feel quite settling. And some of the elements of your story definitely like um, brought that up for me, right? Uh, the ongoing identity-based questions, the who am I questions can be so disorienting for a kid and even for an adult that I wonder to what extent that also operated as a source of trauma, right? And and not to say that that's, I'm not trying to diagnose you or saying that that's in essence what you went through, but just taking from your story and applying it to anyone who's an adoptee, I'm just thinking through that as well. Like that identity source is something that can feel very unraveling. 
And so we have to think about all the things that could have happened in those earlier years, those formative years, when you're trying to really situate, is the world safe? Who am I in this world? Like all those existential questions, and you're not really getting a lot of that, the answers that you need in reference to them. And so that can for sure, you know, kind of bring up some some of what you noted, like the anxiety, the low-level depression, the existential kind of like ideas about the world. And so it can be really challenging. But all of that is to say, I even referenced to it in my book, um, in, in Break the Cycle, I say, we, some of us have chosen families and some of us have families that chose us. And within both of those families, we still have family trees that are worth excavating and digging up and like understanding um, all of the, the different parts of that tree for various reasons, because people that have enough proximity to us, especially at vulnerable points in our lives, like in our childhood, have the capacity to offer an emotional foundation or an emotional fracturing. And so they too need to be a part of the excavation work that we do in understanding our story. And so, you know, it's important that for anybody who, because there's some people that, you know, have been kicked out early on in, in their lives out of their homes, and then they find another family who's more of a chosen family, and those, you know, they may not have healthy patterns. Like, all of these people have an opportunity to create our emotional world or help us to do so. And so I always think, you know, it's important to leave a lot of openness to our, what we believe, you know, has... Um, should have should anybody who should have a a place inside of our narrative. Oh, okay. So I love the word excavation. I've never used that word before, but in essence, a lot of I talk about my story a lot in the hopes that then somebody that is listening can hear a piece of my story that might hit home for them. And then if they identify that's an area that they need some help or healing, then they can listen to this. So when you say excavation and you talked about the identity and belonging piece, I belonged in my family. They loved me. They chose me. They um, did everything they could. I'm positive to provide um, a beautiful, stable life for me. And still, I really longed for that identity piece. So decades later, I felt safe enough to do the excavation, well, and technology allowed me to do the excavation, right? Which for me was the DNA test. And then I, I started to identify people in the tree, my family tree. And fortunately for my story, the people in the family tree, it's spe I'm specifically talking about my father's side, were so open. And like, you are our baby. We lost you 40 plus years ago. They were so open to me and it felt so warm and inviting that it was safe. So I recognize everybody that might have that cert, that need for identity and that search for belonging. Again, as it relates to it, you know, you don't have to be an adoptee to feel like I don't belong or be lacking some sort of identity, of course. But when you start to dig in, you might not always be met with warmth mm -hmm. and acceptance. And I think that's almost like a double whammy um, to that person. So I totally leave you know, I just want to send love and support to those people that are experiencing something less than um, a warm reunion, or they're not finding anything at all. Um, yeah. I've once I started the podcast, I remember speaking to one of my first few guests, and I said, "How do adoptive parents or prospective parents that are thinking about growing their family through adoption, how do they prepare themselves to support a child that might come from 
either knowingly or unknowingly a traumatic experience. Mm. What what could be some tips for those parents that might be listening? Mm -hmm. Even my own, you know, I don't know what they could have done differently other than support, but is there some tips or suggestions that you can offer to any parents that might be listening and struggling? Absolutely. You know, I always like to urge us all, um, parents and parents to be, to engage in the process of helping ourselves in regulating our own nervous systems. Very often when it comes to anything that's mental health related, we can be very, um, we can focus maybe a little too much on the mind. And by the mind, I mean on our thoughts, what happens in our thoughts and the emotions that we carry. And we forget that there is an entirety of our emotions that is also carried in our bodies and that our bodies are responsive and reactive to our social environments and our nervous system is implicated in that and that we can also train our nervous system and our bodies and also because our brains are neuroplastic, we can also do a lot of activities that can help our brains to rewire that can be very, very helpful to helping us become the most child-centered parent that we could be versus someone who isn't, which is perhaps someone who is in perhaps too preoccupied or too much in their own mind and, and emotional journey to really offer the enough of the attunement that a child would need from mm. them. I, so that, that resonates. I, I think I parented from that place when my children were younger. And now I look back and I, I probably wasn't as available as I needed to be um, until I was able to excavate and do some of that work that I needed to do to really parent and be available for my kids. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad that, you know, you, the way that you just offered that reflection felt like it, it held so much compassion within it. Mm -hmm. And and that's a beautiful thing because your kids will also see how human you are and then also um that modeling of that self-compassion is really critical and also how they will learn how they can be compassionate with it, with anything that reflects as them falling short of their own expectations. It was just, just beautiful. Thank I you. Just love it. My, you my boys might not up? agree with you. They yeah. might not agree with you, not but yet. thank you. It not means yet. a lot. Thank you. <laughs> no, it does. It does. It means a lot to me. And I, yeah. and I, the work is not easy. Um, and you know, when I entered into the space of speaking about my experience and identifying people like yourselves that can help with the healing journey, help me really understand it from a scientific perspective. But then also once I start, um, you know, implementing the routines in my life that you talk about, like the meditation and the breathing and the physical exercise. And once this starts, once I started implementing these things into my life, I could feel it. Um, just take down my anxiety a notch. So, you know, I, I love that there is scientific backing. And then I also can speak to the experience of, I did the work. I am doing the work. I'm always doing it. Um, Cause my triggers can get me zero to 150 anxiety meter, like mm -hmm. in a second. Mm -hmm. um, and triggers do that to us, you know, but to answer your question, the, you know, I, I partly answered it, but to, to continue the, the nervous system practices are a lot of what you're already mentioning, right? Meditation is, is such a critical part of how we can really ground ourselves and allow ourselves an opportunity to also engage in that 
rewiring or new wiring of new neural pathways that are programmed to calm and ease and, and, and that allow us an opportunity to be more reflective in our, you know, choices, whether our choices like to scream and yell at a child versus, you know, um, reprimand in other ways, right? Um, it allows us an opportunity to foster more loving connections. There's so many benefits that it all of it just stems from something maybe for some of us a little bit more challenging, but still as simple as meditating, as simple as being mindful more often than not throughout our days as, as something as, you know, maybe taking up an activity or a hobby or a hobby that actually allows us to regenerate our nervous system as well. A yoga, a an eight minute Tai Chi, which I do, right? Like it doesn't have to be like you packing up and going to a yoga studio and taking two hours of your day, which yeah. you may not have as a parent, but you could probably have like a five minute bucket of time in your day where you can offer yourself a regeneration of something with a practice that really helps. So it's in all of that. But I always say, you know, people ask me, especially how can we ensure that we're bringing a child back to a safe home. And I always say we have to work with the parents because the parents are going to be that source of safety and stability that a child is going to look to. And so if we can work with the parents to help them feel safe in their own body, then we've already done a lot of the work to help this child experience a safer home that isn't driven by toxic stress. Oh, that I think that is, I totally agree. And that's completely the key. Um, I do, as I was sort of uncovering my story, the threads and the words that kept kept popping up for me personally, it was truth, it was trust, and it was transparency. Mm-hmm. So um, the act of having a conversation, even if it's uncomfortable, or sharing the truth, even when it hurts, um, you know, for whatever reason, sometimes we just don't tell the whole truth. We are scared for the children. We, we might not even want to hurt our kids. Right. So I have no idea why. Um, so my father who raised me passed away last year and my mom's suffered. She's is alive and she's had dementia for a while. So I've never been able to have these conversations with them since sort of uncovering some of these truths, obviously, mm-hmm. um, which is hard. Right. And I wish that they could have found a way, even if it was with a third party therapist or some sort of support to tell me the story mm-hmm. um, that surrounded the circumstances of my birth that they that they knew at least the pieces that they knew. I don't think they had all the ancestral information, and yeah. um, they certainly probably didn't have intergenerational trauma in their vocabulary. But mm-hmm. um, just to find the truth, um, and that's a piece that I've tried to incorporate into my own parenting to say I, I to try to be honest with my kids. So that is a piece of advice that I offer up now when I look back at my story or people ask me questions, what do you wish your parents did differently? I'm, I just wish that they found a way to tell me the truth and and that I was receptive and trusted trusted it, which all leads to me feeling safe and secure and, you know, hopefully combats any of that insecurity that, you know, I did experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know that, um, you know, I find I have found it in my own personal journey, but also as I've navigated this work professionally to be fairly frustrating that, you know, some of these things that happen inside of our families are by by way of personal choice. And some of it are a part of socialization. So the socialization piece, I tend to be really frustrated by the personal choice. I always wonder about, I get more curious about that rather than frustrated. But what I mean by all of this is you know, we have parents, I know that you you mentioned, you know, 
in, in your own story that you elaborated upon on the on this podcast, you talked about, you know, not parenting from fear, right? Like parenting from a place of trust. And that also made me think to what extent, because there's so many stories that I hear about parents parenting from fear, especially in the generation before ours, that I wonder to what extent was that a normal way or normalized way of people parenting from a place of, you know, self-suppression, like, you know, toxic masculinity in part is, you know, very self-suppressing or suppressing or hurtful or damaging in many ways to others and to self, right? To what extent is that, you know, is there fear in toxic masculinity and the ways that, you know, fathers, especially parent, there's so many iterations of that that I could think of, mm -hmm. but, but I think that it, it makes me frustrated with how we normalize that so much in our society that many parents did parent from a place of fear. And that's a part of why so many parents have been, you know, um, have used physical forms of discipline upon their children. And there's just so many things that have transpired from fear being at the center of parenting rather than yep. ease and love and the things that can be taught as well. Yeah, I, I love that. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about your book title, Break the Cycle, because um, I know before we started recording, we were talking about gaslighting and how some of the ways that I experienced when I would go to my parents and say, Something simple like, why don't I look like you? Do you think I might not be totally white? You know, as I started to meet um, more, I, I grew up in a very small conservative Christian community. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until after eighth grade that I went to the public school and I started to sort of have a little bit more um, consistent diversity in my life. And that's when I started when I was 13, 14 years old, I started to sort of um, experience people that look like me and they weren't, you know, white. And that was my parents sort of not engaging me in that question always uh, left a little bit of a gap for me between what you're telling me and what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I was going to oh break the cycle. So when I think about breaking the cycle, and in, in, I, I almost think about it in two sort of buckets for me and then for adoptees. One is breaking the cycle of the way I was raised. My parents who love me and I can incorporate those pieces and lessons that I learned into my parenting style and into my world today. But where I'm going to break the cycle and is that truth and um, mm -hmm. be able to engage my kids in conversation. So I, I can think of a few times where my kids would come to me and it's just very natural to say, oh, no, and kind of brush them off and give them some easy answer. But engaging now, I have an almost 16-year-old and almost 21-year-old boy. So the conversation. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I know. Wait, I hold on. This is it. We're not on video. So people can't tell that you have such a surprised look on your face. <laughs> I have to say this for the people that are listening. Do I not look like I could have a 21 year old? Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, you, yeah. you look wonderful. And, you know, also all this time that I've been hearing you talk about your kids, I thought they were like little ones. Yeah, so no, I, I have I big am, ones. Mm, I have yeah. big ones. And, and I, and I, and I have apologized to them for some of the behaviors that I as a parent had when they were little. Um, because like I say, I just started to sort myself out. I say, I say when I was 40, which I'm about to be 47. So for the last six years, I feel, um, like I've been figuring myself out and, you know, it's a journey. Like, I think you say it's a journey. Um, but we've had some tough combos now that they're older. Um, yeah. And that's where I'm breaking the cycle with them that I learned when I was growing up um, in the home that I grew up with, where I'm still trying to identify 
anything that shows up in me that might be from a generational, you know, lineage thing. Um, now that I, again, have experienced reunion with my birth family, both sides, mother and father's side, uh, I can see some ways that I, 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 first of all, I act very much so like my paternal grandmother. She, bless her heart. I love her. She is 90 years old. She is still alive. Um, and there are traits that I have of both sides that I can see now and identify, oh, that's where I get this, you know, both physical traits and not physical traits. Um, so I can see I come from a whole line of hotheads, you know, I also have alcoholism in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to drink, right? So now I'm like, now that I know this, I have to be careful um, to break that potential cycle, right? Like the the things that we don't know when we're adopted about ourselves um, can take over without us knowing that they're taking over, mm-hmm. like my love for tequila. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so my grandma jokes around, she said, oh, you're, you know, your great grandpa loved tequila and your uncle loves tequila. And, you know, we used to joke around about it, but I'm like, wait, can we dig into that a little bit? And, you know, so I, I want to make sure that those cycles that I do now know are actually cycles, um, are, are broken. So I do intentionally want to make sure that I'm doing better than, than some of the things that maybe I've experienced either knowingly or not knowingly. So that was important to me. That's beautiful. I, I like to um, reference the two things that you've talked about. The first is, you know, um, one of the most important aspects of breaking cycles is um, actually knowing what cycles need to be broken. So when we can do the digging work, the excavation work into our family line. And that includes the individuals that raise us, even if they're not biologically tied to us, then we can start to really understand what cycles need to be broken. And what I mean by there not needing to be a biological line is that for many of us, the ways that we learn how to deal with stress or stressors or Sometimes the ways that we adopt trauma responses can come from the individuals that were adults in our lives when we were children who modeled for us how to work through stress. If they, for example, whenever they experienced heightened stress, their response was to emotionally shut down and then drink, that's going to be also a modeled response that's going to be a part of what, as you're mentioning, you know, the tequila line, right? Like there was a, a through line of individuals we're more so talking about liking tequila, but I'm, I'm linking it to, you know, how sometimes people may need, you know, something to suppress emotions. If that's what we learned in our childhood, it could very well be the very kind of uh, emotional response that we will emulate. And so knowing allows us an opportunity to have choice and to choose to break the cycle because we now know that there is a cycle that ought to be broken. Oh, that's, that is so, I had that as one of my questions. So thank you for bringing that up. One of my questions that I wanted to make, make sure I asked you was, um, how can we recognize trauma so we can sort of reclaim who we are, whether we know or we don't know, mm-hmm. and then decide who we want to be? And then how do we get there, right? I want to be a better mom. How do I get there? Why am I this way? How do I combat that? So thank you for bringing that up mm-hmm. because I'm totally not looking at my notes. Bear. I'm, I, I have all these awesome questions that I wanted to make sure I asked you and I'm not even probably getting to half of them. So thank you for bringing that one up, which is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the whole thing, right? 
um, when I, it was August last year. So just for now about a year, I've been really actively trying to talk about what I've experienced so I can land on resources that can, of course, help me through healing. And then also the community of other adoptees helped me heal because I realized I wasn't by myself and experiencing so many of the things that I was experiencing. So I'm hopeful that people can, you know, look look at your website, drmariellebouquet.com. I'm hoping that they will go to your website and see all these awesome resources. You have a newsletter, you have a podcast, you have the book, which comes out. I know you can pre-order it now. It comes out in January. Yeah, January 2nd. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And mm -hmm. yeah, there's just so many resources out there because I think a lot, not a lot, but some of the people that I've met and I don't, it's so interesting. I have so much compassion for us adoptees now that I've met so many and heard so many different stories. Mm -hmm. Some people are really, really still angry and they know it and they're just going to stay there and they're pissed off. Um, and, and, you know, I, uh, a story that I'm thinking about is a friend of mine, somebody that I met uh, years ago, and we had a similar, we have very different stories, but um, she also was um, relinquished at birth, wound up going throughout foster care, not having a good experience um, in multiple foster homes, and really is a strong and resilient human, aged out of the system, wound up getting adopted, and we've we share stories, and sort of recently she made a comment to me about somebody at work doing something to her where she just went like, do you not trust that I'm, you know, going to get done what I'm going to get done? And she kind of a little bit popped off. I don't think to them she was professional, but to me, you know, she's, she, the question kind of was, why is this person not trust me that I'm going to get my work done? And it just kind of went, like I said, from zero to 150. And I said, I am no expert, but based on the information that I'm now re researching and reading, I said, could it be that any of your reaction to this person is stemming from something that you experienced before you even, you know, it's not your fault that you're reacting this way. Is it possible that it could be coming from something else? Mm. And I remember she contacted me after kind of that conversation and she's like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to look into that. And it's uncomfortable for me to, she was saying it's uncomfortable for her to think about that, mm -hmm. but it just feels like there could be a tie and some of the pop-off might not necessarily be our fault. Right. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I think about the personal and the professional relationships that I've had or burned or um, acted in a way. And sometimes, yeah, I don't know. So I don't, for, for that, I just wanted to bring that up in case that's yeah. helpful because yeah. it was something specific that she said. And because again, because I've been just listening and reading um, all of the research and the work, there could be a tie. Like you said, if you're, if you've seen that, in your multiple foster homes and foster families and people throughout your life, if somebody even remotely like triggers that. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know any tips in those moments. Is it just that we go back to say, pause, meditate, breathe? Are those still the same tools that you recommend, you know, we use when we feel that we're about to flip that switch? Well, you know, yes. And so there's, you know, there's a, a few techniques, one of which, um, happens to be for us to not just offer ourselves a, a pause, but also regenerate and then come back to the circumstance or to the conversation, already having done some of the regeneration work and then also doing some of the mapping to where is this coming from. I actually have one client that I reflect in my book that does have a story that's situated in her office space. 
that also is offered a trigger point for her to some of the wounds that she experienced back when she was growing up. Uh, a boss that would, in essence, like leave her to do all this work and a family member. Well, you know, her parents who would, in essence, parentify her and leave her to do a lot of the house housework as well. And so that was being like triggering, you know, and, and almost re-traumatizing now in her adult life and her work life. And so there's ways in which these triggers do come back up, which is why the understanding of what our own triggers are, the grounding ourselves so that we can feel more rooted and not have so much of a a heightened reaction to when these circumstances come up, those are going to be really critical in, in the process. So thank you. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour and break mm-hmm. all this down, but I promised you I'd get you out of here by a certain time. So mm-hmm. I am going to, I, we already talked about where people can find you, which is your website. You're also on Instagram. Your book mm-hmm. can be pre-ordered at your website right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know we talked about intergenerational trauma, but a couple of the other topics that people can kind of look to you for, which I love this whole list is like, check. Y- yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, healing trauma, forming healthy relationships, um, toxic relationship cycles, family dynamics, systemic trauma, which we didn't even get to talk about. That's a big, obviously huge one, collective trauma and corporate wellness. So thank goodness you pivoted your career. Thank thank you on behalf of me and everybody else that I know probably turns to you for the daily nuggets of inspiration. Um, Thank you very much. And thank you for the hour that you just spent with me today. You're, yeah, I'm a huge fan of you and your work. Thank you for putting the content out there and doing the work so we can all heal. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for allowing me an opportunity to speak to this work and um, for appreciating it. Thank you. Yeah, we need you in this space. This is a big, huge community of people that are hurting for one reason or another. And there's the people that love us and support us, that want to help us, can learn from you. And then obviously we can do our own self-help Um, through a lot of the things that we can learn from you. So thank you, thank you. Thank you you for tuning in to this episode of The Adoptee Diaries. I hope this discussion has sparked important conversations and offered valuable insights for adoptees, their loved ones, and the broader community. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes and follow us on social media to join the conversation. Together, we can create a world where adoptees feel seen, heard, and understood. A world where we can heal. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.